Hello, and welcome to Digitizing Democracy. I'm your host, Matthew Human, the CEO and founder of NewVote, a company focusing on developing secure, accessible online voting for elections. This is a recording of an Ask Me Anything I did on August 5th, where we discussed why we need to digitize democracy and the tools available to improve the way we interact with our government. If you're interested in helping us solve these problems, follow us on LinkedIn, that's N-E-U-V-O-T-E, or become a shareholder in NewVote by contributing to our funding round on FrontFunder. That's frontfunder.com slash NewVote. We thank you very much for your time and look forward to hearing from you. Hope you enjoy. Okay, cool. So here we are with the NewVote uh, AMA, everyone. Uh, Matt, how are you doing? Oh, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I just got a notification from somebody. Um, that's okay. that. Uh, give me one second. Yeah. Okay, they can't make it. They want a copy of the recording. Yeah, for sure. We'll send out a copy of the recording at uh, after the um, after everything's done. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's uh, that's the whole reason for this. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's get the AMA up and running. Um, Matt, the whole point of this was uh, to get people to uh, come and ask questions and uh, and uh, interface uh, with the new vote leadership. But uh, as people come in and go, we'll just get started on ourselves. So. Let's talk uh, first about the Front Founder campaign. Um, love to get your thoughts about you know being someone who is listed for the second time with Front Founder. Uh, how's that been? It's been really uh, it's been really good. We um, we ran the first campaign. Um, we launched it, I think, at the end of 2020, and it went for a few months leading into. I think we concluded in February 2021. And no, it was it was a ton of fun. Um, working with Front Founder team has been absolutely terrific. Um, they see. It, the whole sort of crowdfunding initiative has really taken off um, for startups. It's it provided a really unique aspect of raising, like a, a avenue of raising capital, um, especially during COVID when things were a bit wishy washy. Like like you know the markets were up, the markets were down. People were going into crypto. Like there's all these different um, vehicles that people can park their money in. Um, but crowdfunding provides an opportunity for just general people to really get involved. And it also provides like the company from like our side, a really unique way of, of looking at how we manage our, our investor relations and how we approach our pitching to like, you know, the general public. It's completely different from what you typically experience pitching to like an institutional investor, just the way that you present your company, your, your vision, where you want to take it. Um, and it's really given us a lot of insight and uh, terrific feedback from the investors that have jumped on. Yeah, I mean, I agree too. Like, it's pretty cool seeing the front founder companies that are um, that have been getting funding and uh, doing so. Like, it's an alternative way of getting capital. But um, you know, I love to break this down for you as like a founder slash CEO. What does it mean, right? Um, we have in our audience uh, my younger cousin, uh, Bradovan, who is uh, twenty one. He's 22 um, and considering, uh, you know, investing. And his question is like, what does this mean as for me as an investor? Like, what does it mean to invest in a private company? Um, uh, You know, I advised him generally an early stage company, you know, you're investing for like a seven year, 10 year haul sometimes to get to IPO. Um, So for a a young investor who wants to come into the company, what does that, what do you think um, that should represent for them? Well, I'd love to actually hear uh, like the, the inverse of that and like what would make or what drives a retail investor to get involved in a private company from uh, from their side of things. Like I can I kind of understand the um, the reasoning from the corporate side. Of course, you know, we want to explore different ways of funding our, our uh, initiatives, what, you know, funding the company. Um, 
there is not much of a big difference between dealing with like a, you know, one or two institutional or angel investors versus dealing with like, you know, 30 smaller investors. It, it you answer the same questions. They all want to kind of know the exit strategy. Um, your point about like having the, the long-term play, like that can happen with, with any private enterprise. There's um, I've read something recently that generally the sweet spot for companies when they go IPO, companies that typically are dominating a market or are projected to dominate a market, IPO is typically around a four-year cycle or four to six-year, actually, sorry, six-year cycle. So like as soon as um, the company's launched to the day they go IPO, six years is typically where you see um, most major tech companies over the last 20 years kind of hit their stride. And um, I think generally that's, you know, that seven to 10 year point that you made, Ravi, is like, it, it's probably the case. There's also the case that the company never goes public or gets acquired or something like that. There's a whole ton, tons of different exits that a company can really do. But um, no, like uh, to attract the, the retail investor, typically it's, it's not necessarily based on exit or the same motivations that uh, are driving the institutions to get involved where it's very financial based and, and future based. It's a lot of it has to do with the passion behind the project. And if people want to get involved with this particular company for a particular reason. So uh, we've seen a lot of campaigns ran where there's some sort of um, uh, angle regarding like a green company or green initiative, or like a general social good. And I think our company definitely fits into one of those, um, I guess, verticals where people want to get involved because they're passionate about the industry as a whole. So value, like uh, main way, way of investing in startups, the way I mean evaluating startups is to think of them as uh, the future they're creating and investing in that, mm -hmm. not necessarily as a financial product. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's a really good way to put it. It's hard to, like I said, it's hard to say because I'm not uh, a retail investor myself. I, I invest in my own company, so it's a bit uh, mm -hmm. different. The passion is, is definitely there. Um, but no, I think from our feedback that we have you know from the feedback we've received from the investors that have joined the the, um, the campaign a lot of it has been reaching out saying like hey this makes perfect sense um, this is the kind of future that we see as well and we want to get involved right now because it's you know it's a, we're at the ground floor kind of thing and uh, I would definitely say it has a lot to do with um, you know what your company is presenting both from a financial forecast but also like what are you doing you know to make things better in whatever whatever avenue that you may be exploring. Yeah, so let's talk a little about the, about investing in in your own company and growing that. You know, over you know over the past uh, year and a half, uh, we've seen the markets go absolutely haywire. Uh, it's probably been one of the most frothiest uh, market uh, um, uh, public markets in in, in in our in our lifetime. And you know we're seeing these rocket uh, like these uh, these value based stocks that are uh, getting um, uh, getting valued not based off the, on the company, but based off the hype and based off of what uh, investors, so-called investors, think of them, right? So, in this kind of frothy market space, how does a security like Newboat stand out? Let's talk about the future you're building, and uh, what uh, what the what the investment in that future looks like, right? So, standing up, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Ravi. Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like so uh, as a as a as a fun uh, as a 
a financial product, right? Uh, an early stage company, you're buying um, the, the future that they're, that they're creating, jumping into that uh, future with new vote, right? Uh, and uh, we've done about uh, two podcasts now on our podcast, uh, on, on the BlueMax podcast, and we talked about one new vote's inception of how, how you came to be. And we've talked about uh, the future that uh, you, know, you hopefully want to want to build. But what does it take to get there? Like, what does the world look like right now when it comes to democracy and uh, and engagement? Uh, do you think that COVID has, um, you know, thrown aside people's civic uh, needs or made them more uh, inclined to be involved? Yeah, like, it's really interesting. So, like, the quick preamble to how I personally got involved in it is I simply um, was kind of getting involved with election technology around 2015. And at that same time, if anyone remembers this, it was sort of like a, uh, a bottom of the page type uh, throw out there for the uh, for the news cycle at the time. But in the election, the Liberal Party of Canada announced that they're going to be adding um, exploring online voting to their platform. Now, because I was already working with applications and election technology myself, um, just not explicitly with voting involved in the federal election, I kind of said, you know what, like, let's let's really look, look into this and try to figure out why this technology isn't really here. That, similarly to the FrontFunder campaign's feedback, the feedback I was receiving from my users at the time was the same request. Can you vote with this? And I, I of course, had to say no. So that's what kind of pulled me into it. And then, of course, we spent years researching this and trying to really understand the market and, and get involved with you know the expert community, the academics, to really understand why they're so typically opposed to this technology coming to fruition. But COVID hits. And I can tell you right now that a number of people that three years ago, two years ago, would have said, you know what, I don't know if online voting is a good idea, have come around and they see the value in it simply from the accessibility point of view and as sort of like as an alternative voting channel. Online voting has the capability to replace the current system as a whole, but I don't necessarily think that will ever happen for just a, a variety of reasons. You have to always kind of offer different voting methods. Um, similar to what we saw in the U.S. election in 2020, they had a lot of vote by mail, but you could also go in and cast a ballot in person. I imagine that's, that hybrid approach is typically what you're going to find moving forward. What I can say is over the last year, I've never seen uh, a shift in a market as quickly as uh, online voting. Like we had teleconferencing before. Uh, people were already using video calls for anybody when you were connecting with someone, uh, a colleague in, in a faraway area. With online voting, though, like as soon as COVID hit, we were fielding calls from all sorts of people who were just you would have never expected. Um, there are some that explicitly called me and said, you can't let anyone know that we're talking because it was a it was a government that didn't want to um, publicly disclose they were worried about being able to actually govern because of the, the threat of COVID. But that's what was happening. It was it was all hands on deck. Um, what we're seeing now is entire countries are exploring this technology rapidly. And it's not a small undertaking. It's it's we're talking about shifting a, a core principle in a very short period of time in a field of technology that up till now has struggled to manifest a viable solution. So it is it is a really unique sort of cacophony of, of different issues and different stakeholders that are coming together and trying to figure out the best way to do this. But like the shift itself is rapid. And I, I, I can't even implore that enough. It is like day by day, things are changing. I've never been, um, I'm actually happy I've been working from home over the last year because I was more busier than I think I'll ever be in my entire life over the last year. It's, it's just been nuts. 
furthermore, it's, it, you know, we're seeing entire organizations that I get, like, like, I'll just throw a good example out there, the parliament, like our MPs in Ottawa, they're using online voting. That's how they're casting. That's how our government is now maintaining, you know, status operandi, right? Like, that's how they're maintaining the ability to govern. So <laughs> the people who have the capacity and the ability to make these decisions for the entire country now, at all levels, at the federal level, are now using the same technology and getting very comfortable with it. Um, we had the pleasure of speaking to them, um, making suggestions when they were looking at exploring this technology, and it was it was fantastic to be able to lend that um, the knowledge that we've you know uh, gathered over the years to our government in the time of need. And it's what we're going to see now. And like my forecast for the future is, I fully believe within the next ten years, uh, if not at the federal level, the majority of Canadians will have the opportunity to vote online um, at, at at the very least in an election, even if it's just an alternative. Yeah, there's something I think I've been dying to talk to you about. Like, based off my uh, high school civic knowledge, I know that democracy, you know, floats between this uh, this, this space between representative democracy and direct democracy, right? So, representative democracy, we elect people, represent us, and vote on things on our behalf, and represent us in, our, in, in government, based mostly on geography, and uh, you know, we uh, we elect uh, national leaders, provincial, uh, and municipal, right? But there's also direct democracies, and um, you know, nation states definitely like float between this, where you know they'll have nationwide referendums or citywide referendums, where people directly vote on an issue directly, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of having the representative vote for them. And one of the interesting things about uh, your tech with the new vote is that once you get the, the average person able to e- easily interface with their government, where does that lead to, right? Does it? You know, what does uh, a more uh, in, like tech-enabled democracy look like? What can that lead to? Yeah, that's that's one of the uh, the core passions that we've had that we've had had to kind of add into. So originally, when we approached this, we were really just kind of thinking like, okay, let's just figure out how to actually like like technically pass a vote over the internet in a secure way. That was like the the very core technology that we needed to kind of figure out ahead of time, but. As we started actually speaking to um, the buyers, so like the typical, the largest market in, in online voting is in Ontario and Canada at the municipal level. The, the per capita, more people are using online uh, technology or online voting technology uh, here than any other place, even the countries that are fully online, that provide all their election services online. So like that's, that's really unique, which a lot of people aren't even 100% familiar with because it's such an isolated municipal level. And of course, Toronto doesn't do it, therefore no one else really cares because Toronto doesn't do it. Um, but the really interesting thing when we were engaging with the the buyers and getting our market research done was the fact that they had to connect with their electorate legally, like it's a mandate um, legislated for everything, for tons of stuff. If they want to install a water main, if they want feedback on a particular thing, if they want to um, send notices out. But they also have these these criteria where they have to get feedback from their constituents at a municipal level. If you start elevating that to provincial level, you also have a government that wants feedback. That's what the whole polling agency, um, that's all they do. They get paid to essentially get the sentiment of the citizens. Federally, it's the same thing too. Where we saw a unique opportunity with online voting was the value exchange that occurs on a platform that necessitates proper verification of a person. Everyone understands voting. 
is critical to like you have to prove who you are to actually vote at least in Canada anyway we're very strict with our ID requirements when they go online um, historically when people have used this technology they have to provide credentials therefore you know with a high level of certainty who the person is that's actually accessing your service when it comes to civic engagement currently though there is no verification you typically use an email which is completely anonymous. Um, the platforms themselves are anonymous, and the and the feedback that you get is uncertain. You don't really have a a good reading because you there's no way to really uh, ascertain the the demographical uh, statistics of who's accessing it. You may be able to get some metadata from somewhere, but generally it's like whatever you can pull from an email necessarily, like which isn't a lot. Now, with online voting though, because these citizens are providing verification. They're coming in, they're using a utility that everyone is very comfortable with, you know, the, 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 the cities that have moved over to it. If we were then to have this connection point and leverage that for further engagement, we thought that was a unique attribute that we could build in adjacent to the core voting technology that we were providing. Because it, again, these, the buyers themselves, the people running the elections, are the people that have to reach out about water mains and streets or civic engagement or whatever, or feedback, anything. It's the same people, the exact same individual that would be buying it for one use is buying the other service for the other one. So why not just provide the same service and then leverage a, the verified user base that we would have to get from the voting tool, but also combine that in with just, Hey, now you have a spot where you can engage your, your government. You can talk about things. You can provide this feedback. You, they can get a pulse of their electorate. But come election time, they're already there. They're familiar with the platform. And then all of a sudden, they can go and pass a vote through. We see it as a really unique way to sort of uh, prime the market for what we intend to eventually see, which is full-scale online voting across the entire country. Really, really something that uh, has been an interesting nut that we've tried to crack. And... We're really happy to see the feedback that we have gotten uh, already, which is, uh, I think people are, I think people are ready for this. No, I, I, I love that because um, you know this idea of like, especially municipal wide neighbor, like especially municipal wide, um, or even like um, your your neighbor neighborhood, your recent area, like people are very concerned about uh, you know what happens around them, road construction, especially if you're a homeowner and this you know you want to change up how the streets, uh, the flow of traffic is, the the, uh, the speed limits, all that kind of stuff. You're you know there's a lot of concern about uh, how that's going to affect your neighborhood. The buildings are going to come up, the changes that that are being applied so like i noticed this back uh you know even early days of like back in 2010 when i was trying to launch a different service i noticed especially in markham and in canada like markham is like the high-tech capital right markham is divided into all these tiny tiny uh neighborhoods and all these neighborhoods were online with like their own forum style chats um this is back in like, 2010 Right to, to our twenty uh, like up to like twenty fifteen, the Facebook um, groups became really famous, and everything kind of migrated there. There's been a long history of neighborhoods trying to coordinate uh, amongst themselves and figuring out ways like a forum to like uh, talk about their issues, what's going on, and be engaged about the changes in their neighborhoods. And when Facebook came, they kind of uh, all accommodated, right? It's like uh, all the neighborhoods join one platform. And now you can jump between the two, especially if you're like uh, a public figure, and you can jump between the neighborhoods and engage with them. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the interesting things I see things see things about this is you know I, in my neighborhood I'm part of like this uh, Bucks Grove connected it's a neighborhood I'm part of this uh, this community and in it like civic leaders like the mayor will already come in and he's post something directly about our area and the cool thing about that is this is the mayor of this large one of Canada's biggest uh, biggest uh, cities but he's talking directly to our neighborhood about things that are happening here and give us an update. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, right? So this back and forth that's uh, that's possible. Uh, that I, I think like uh, I think Facebook's kind of brought it up, but there's other um, um, apps that are been trying to like uh, galvanize this like like the civic engagement side of things. But the idea of tying in votes, right? Because each, uh, especially in the municipal areas, like. If like uh, a, a commercial plaza is being rezoned, or like they're gonna put a high rise into into like a lower historically low rise neighborhood, or if the street signs are gonna change, they do these like public votes that most people don't know about. But after mm-hmm. Facebook became a thing, like Facebook groups for neighborhoods, uh, civic leaders can say, "Hey, we're gonna have a town hall about this issue. Anyone who wants to come in can join." And what COVID's done is now these town halls are all virtual; mm-hmm. they're all on Zoom. So like we've slowly been classically trained on how to use technology better to be engaged with one another and uh, the the areas we live in. So uh, I see this as full circle, right? It is all going down a path right into this this funnel of like how do we directly engage better with our government? Yeah, no, I, 100%, especially like I said with COVID, it, you're right, the civic engagement side of things like the, the town halls that they used to host, they're all virtual now. Almost everything is virtual. Um, your point, though, like the, the thing about Facebook is, it, again, it, you're absolutely right. It completely shifted. Um, and when we were first engaging, everyone back in like 2015, 2016, expected Facebook to become like the de facto channel for communication. It made perfect sense. And that's what we typically saw, especially when like places like the U.S. with the U.S. election, you know, uh, the candidates uh, r- really leveraged social media in a really new way. And it, everyone was expecting it to just be the, the de facto method from here on out. Of course, though, what we have seen, especially over the last few years now, is the deficiencies of running everything through an, a social media channel. And it's like the way that we kind of see uh, the market kind of shifting in general is you're going to have these, these uh, platforms now that are specialized in, in very particular things. It's, it's one of the reasons why like Facebook owns WhatsApp and Instagram, you know, because some people only want to talk. So that's WhatsApp. That's they want to text. They don't want any of the you know bells and whistles of a social media platform, and it's become uh, a utility in and of itself. Uh, you have Instagram with pictures. People want to post pictures. They don't want all the other stuff. You know, there's comments, but realistic, like realistically, it's about posts and engaging with your your you know whoever you're engaging with on on Instagram. Facebook, though, it's a different thing. And I think especially now, you know, what's come full circle is like Facebook really isn't a great place for poli- like po- you know political engagement. And so, and, and civic engagement. Yeah, there are groups in there, but like, oh man, there are problems because there's a lot of um, interference, I guess you could say, where Facebook does highlight these you know, deficiencies quite well. Uh, then you have places like LinkedIn, explicitly focused on business and the professional minded community. That's where we see a sort of um, platform opening up that focuses explicitly on um, the communication channel between a, a citizen and their government at whatever level. Keep all the other noise, your, you know, your posts of your family, your whatever, keep all that stuff off it. It's similar like when you go on LinkedIn and somebody posts something deeply personal um, that really 
a lot of people may feel isn't inappropriate for LinkedIn. People will tell them that, hey, this is LinkedIn. Like, we don't need this. This is not something you want to share on here. We expect like the platform will eventually take that shape uh, where it's more focused on efficiency, um, moderation, keeping your community sort of intact and engaging in, a, in an effective way. That's where we see the benefit of having a platform dedicated to the service. Um, again, and, and because you're kind of verified on it, we hope that um, uh, moderation is something we're, we're keeping in mind, but we also hope that people keep it pretty courteous on here simply because it is your community. It, it is somewhere where you live. These are your neighbors. These are your people in your in your district. So that's uh, something we're, we're definitely keeping in mind. Yeah. So, so speaking of Facebook and the, the public trust, um, you know, Facebook uh, has gone through these uh, the antitrust uh, lawsuits uh, uh, recently, and part of that uh, part of that reason why is um, you know how exploited the, their ad system was uh, during the election, U.S. elections time, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they they really dropped the ball on uh, protecting, uh, I guess, um, the civil liberties of, of their users, and so. Talking about this, like Facebook has brought people and, and made them more civically engaged and gave them a platform, but uh, the public trust has been kind of defiled, right? And uh, the idea that uh, apps can be utilized as the data structures can be utilized against us or for foreign actors, um, what does that mean for uh, nation states and uh, civic leaders and um, and uh, and regular voters, right? Like, how does a new vote kind of come to play when it comes to security? Well, that's just the thing, right? Is like you're absolutely right, and you're going to have nation states interfering in elections, regardless. Not even an election, sorry. In in just any any public or political traffic, um, if it's open ended and you're not restricting things, like that's a, that's a big problem. Part of the reason why we saw such a unique benefit in combining these two, like the utility of an election system with a, a civic platform, is again, the the users and the buyers are the same people, but because inherently you have to restrict outside people from engaging in your election. The security and parameters are inherently built into this process, inherently from the very beginning of it. The way we we instantiate our servers, the way that we set up everything, our security protocols, it's built for an election. So applying that same security and parameters to civic engagement provides the exact same result of mitigating interference, protecting the user, protecting the, the, the platform itself. But you're applying it to something as innocuous as a poll question or a city asking whether or not, um, you know, they want to build a bike lane. The security is there. It protects against um, outside interference as highly as you would expect in an election, uh, but on a much you know less security threshold scale. But we actually see that as a huge benefit and something that definitely is needed to apply to this industry to sort of... Uh, prevent and uh, solve some of the issues that we've seen with places like Facebook, Twitter, etc. So uh, we have uh, Aaron here uh, joining us from Clubhouse. Aaron has been uh, in a few uh, Clubhouse rooms uh, with us before. Uh, Aaron, uh, just to get you caught up, we're talking about digitizing democracy. Uh, Matt, uh, Matt's company, uh, New Vote, is an elections company and um, we're doing Q&A here, so anyone from the audience can come up and have a few words to say. So, Aaron, you have any questions? Yeah, I have questions, comments, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to learn, right? This, this is a new area to me. I mean, I'm big on civic engagement and 
Um, one of the things I like is the convenience that digitizing democracy bring in, right? So, you, you know, you could literally sit in your uh, bedroom and vote for the candidate that you wish to choose, right? So mm-hmm. that, that's a beautiful thing about digitizing. I'm a proponent of digitizing, but one of the things I have a question for you, it's two part, uh, so you have to bear with me for a sec. Um, so part one is, you know, however secure these servers are, you know, I still think that if you if you have the time and, and the know-how, you could still uh, hack any system, right? Nothing is foolproof. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a danger to democracy because you don't want any any foreign entities, you know, rogue elements to, to, to uh, ruin uh, a, a democratic election, right, in another mm-hmm. country. That's one. Number two is when, when you digitize, you know, now in today's day and age, you know, you got fingerprint, you got, um, uh, what do you call it, um, face, facial recognition and things like that. But the thing is, not everyone is going to have access to those tools when they're mm-hmm. sitting at home, right? So when it comes to fingerprint, anyone can fake it. You know, you can actually force someone, you could put a uh, you know, gun to someone's head and force them to, you know, place their fingerprint, right? Mm-hmm. And you could do that in 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 rogue nations, right? So I'm just trying to see how do you perceive the future? How how do you think these things could be addressed through technology? Those are those are great questions. Thank you very much, Sharon. So the first one is is really interesting because that's typically the biggest challenge that we've ever seen with with online voting when we have this discussion is how can we trust it? And po- Part of the answer that we've come up with is it's twofold. So the, the first thing is when, we, when I first was researching online voting, I wanted to understand what the criticisms of it were from like a very high level, like, like academic level, not just general consensus of like why it doesn't work. So I spent about two and a half years pretty much just reading research paper after research paper from, you know, the, the critics, the people that absolutely despise the idea of, of voting online, because I wanted to find out what the vulnerabilities were, what was preventing this from becoming a reality. And the first answer that we came up with was something that sort of was, it was a eureka moment to us, because it made so much sense to solve that security question. And the real answer is like, paper ballot. Take the data off the system. I'm actually in agreement with you around that generally, pretty much anything can be hacked. Fairly easy, you know, uh, if you have enough resources and expertise in a particular system, no company is uh, immune to that. So the answer is simply though, take it offline. And the reason why this has worked so uniquely for this system is this methodology is both what the intelligence community uses uh, like CIA, et cetera, but also what energy companies use. So energy companies are, again, a high-level target, highly visible target to, to state actor attacks. We just saw that happen to a pipeline out of the U.S. not too long ago. But energy companies exist all over the world, and they are retrofitting all of their uh, security systems to be more um, uh, secure moving forward. And part of the reason that they are part of the way that they're doing that is creating air gaps, which means... Uh, systems that are mission critical uh, are not connected to a public network at all. You would have to have something like physical access to it to actually interfere with it. And we applied that same utility to voting. We said the paper ballot works and it makes perfect sense. 
like perfect sense in um, typical elections where you go in and vote. And it works because you're putting the vote on a piece of paper, which is you can't really hack a piece of paper. You can't change it after. Yes, you could corrupt a ballot box. But again, if you're corrupting a ballot box, you are so deep inside the election that there's really not much you can do. And the way we manage elections in Western democracies provide a lot of visibility. You'd have to have a lot of corrupt people interfering with the ballot boxes. But you're creating an, an immutable data structure. Like it can't be hacked, it can't be reversed, and it's anonymous. But the, the ballot boxes, again, it's offline. You'd have Again, you'd have to have physical access to it. So what if we took a vote from a digital interface, passed it over the network very quickly, secured it, encrypted it, et cetera, but printed it off, got it, off the, got it offline as quickly as we could. You would then essentially provide a vector of attack that would be so small. And if you are using enough security surround like for the data in transit as it's going through, you would actually provide a significant way, like a, a fairly secure way to get that data through the network and then off the network. And that's what we started toying with. That's what we spent years developing. Uh, building, you know, prototypes of how to essentially, you know, pass it from an app to a to a remote printer, and then how we sort of instantiated that on our particular system is we provided a way for the voter to actually witness in real time using end-to-end -end encrypted video the transmission of the vote and the visible aspect, the visible confirmation of that vote coming out of the printer, and that's that was the core new vote system. We thought it was really unique. We started passing it by security um, experts and. They came back with it. You know, we got things like, "Oh, that's clever. That's clever." And we thought it was really, uh, you know, pat on your back moment kind of thing. But that's how we really saw this industry going. We said, "You know what? Any system is going to be um, uh, vulnerable if it's sitting on a server. So let's get it off the server." And as soon as we started applying this sort of traditional process to our, you know, implementation of what we conceived as online voting, it things started clicking, and we started getting the positive feedback that kind of pushed us along. And now I've had the pleasure of presenting it to uh, the expert community as a whole, even even notable experts. Again, people who uh, quite publicly will oppose online voting um, globally across the world. They have come, sort of come around, and you know we, we won't get an endorsement. They're critics. They're typical, uh, typically researchers, but they haven't challenged it enough for us. Like they're not on, on, in the press saying no, this won't work. They are saying that to other systems systems that are just existing on a web page you go in and vote um those are the ones where you see the headlines like no we can't do online voting it's not secure it's not something that can be done if you read and you and you listen to the the companies that they're attacking with those statements it's not us and we've been very blessed with having some of these critics um actually come on to the webinars that we're doing and show support again can endorse it's their position they're very neutral actors um but they are showing up and explaining why our method, the system that we've created, is probably the most plausible one. So that's the first part of your answer, Rand. I hope that uh, that answers part of it. The second part is, until now, there hasn't really been a big company that's really looked at how to provide online voting from a really deep intrinsic level. There's just been a lot of smaller companies that are trying to, you know, apply really interesting technology to the space. But nothing that's really come out of um, a deep level of research that the industry kind of uh, expects. Um, I, I say that until now because in 2019, I think officially is when it came out or when it was publicized, Microsoft decided to 
take a academic who's been working on cryptographic election security since the 1980s and start funding his research directly. They saw the need. They saw what was going on in the uh, in, in the election space, and they basically said, "Okay, we you've been researching this. It's cryptographically secure. You have this this body of work, all this expertise behind you. Go and build this this product." And they did, and it came out. It was called Election Guard, and it basically blew everyone away because all of a sudden you had this massive company. Microsoft is one of the, I think, like the second biggest tech company in the world behind this research, which is explicitly designed. There's no other function for it, really. It's explicitly designed to provide high-level cryptographic security to a voting system. And they gave it away. They wanted anybody to start using it. And immediately, I had the pleasure of meeting the architect of it uh, at a conference in Europe. And I immediately was like, I need this system. And I, I sat him down and had dinner with him one night. And I said, look, the paper ballot system combined with the election guard system, um, we think this may be able to provide a, a method to provide uh, secure online voting. I, I should say, though, like election guard was not designed at all for online. It wasn't. It was, it was designed essentially to provide cryptographic security for in-person voting. It's, it was only the combination of the paper ballot system um, when I presented it to him, the paper ballot system and election guard, they, that it may have worked. And I got the, the gentleman to at least acknowledge that it was plausible anyway, from a very you know, theoretical point of view. Over the last year, though, we've been building the system out. We got it, uh, the election guard system working in our online uh, voting system. And now we are you know, secured with uh, a method of security for, for votes that the industry has never seen before. And it's quickly picking up massive adoption, both from the buyer's level. Um, we've seen it written down by name, uh, explicitly asking for election guard in some of the, in, in Toronto. The city of Toronto is adopting it for their in-person voting machines. Um, we've seen um, cities requested, again, by name for online voting. And it, it's basically just changed the, the way that the industry is, is perceiving this. Um, the third largest election company in the U.S., <clears throat> the one that does in-person voting, they've adopted election guard. So we kind of, again, we saw where the industry was headed. We believed that this was the most secure method to do it. And then before we even built or deployed the system, you know, we brought this to the experts and got the feedback that we needed to feel comfortable putting in all this time, putting in all this money and really, you know, doubling down on our, uh, our vision for the future. That's the first part of the, there, there's, I hope that's a very extensive, um, answer to your uh, to your question i i will say this to anyone listening to this i i to, if i've been accused of talking too much uh, that's a hundred percent factually true statement so i apologize oh, that's for fine man. I mean, this, this this gives me a, a perspective on, on on this right um you know it's i understand how you need to take it offline right and having the data saying the offline right so yeah. that um it couldn't be hacked, and the second part is election guard. So I'm gonna read up on it, but um, I, I I wish you best of luck, you know, with with your with your company. And uh, Ravi, hey, now that uh, we have gotten the shots, we should catch up sometime. Absolutely, Aaron. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do an offline meetup. And Matt, uh, the invitation is out, uh, extended to you as well. I'm interested in meeting you guys. So yeah, for sure. We'll catch up. Okay. Good luck. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Have a good night. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I think the, I think the, the it keeps coming back to security with uh, with everybody, right? Like how how it works. Um, but you know, let's talk about um, uh, elections in general. Um, you know, we're, we're rumored to have uh, elections coming up in Canada soon. Uh, what is that? Gonna, what do you think is going to look like with the COVID situation and, and everyone's vaccines? Hard to tell. I would say uh, there's going to be a dual channel approach. Vote by mail um, is probably the most expected uh, outcome. Um, vote by mail is opposed by a lot of different groups for a lot of reasons. So it's going to be interesting um, to see how that comes out. People like it. It, it works well. Like, but uh, like, uh, and I'm not trying to throw shade on a on a competitive you know uh, method of voting or anything, but you know there is a lot of things that need to be addressed with it. Like one is um, how do we verify who the person is? I think uh, Aaron's follow second question that he asked me, which I, I didn't get a chance to answer because I was too long winded in my response was um, how do you verify? Like how do you prevent voter coercion? Right. How do you ensure that, that this person is who they say they are when they're accessing your system? We have some answers for that. We use a system of bio-authentication um, that, that we can apply to it so that you know that it's operating, you know, the individual's operating in real time. When it comes to um, vote by mail, though, we don't have that same requirement. So the difference between what the U.S. does and Canada is when you go in to vote in Canada, you have to provide ID or, or verification at the time of casting the ballot. You present your ID or you get even someone to sign a declaration saying they know you. There's an element of like liveness built into the process of verification. In the US though, you know, everyone has this, um, I'm sure you've heard of the discussion regarding voter ID laws down there and how they want to change them and make them more restrictive. It's just that in the US, you register to vote ahead of time. So the state already knows that you're a registered voter before you go in to vote. That's why they don't require ID at the time of voting, because they, you simply give them your name, and then that name should already be on a list. So that's how they, they corroborate that you're an actual voter. It's all sort of half predetermined and half verified when they, they do it. And it's, again, you have to register to vote. Um, there are cases where if you're not registered, it, it, it's very arduous. You could be prohibited from voting. So for Canada, this federal election, if we have to provide ID and, and you know, you're getting a requested ballot, it's going to be interesting to see how they do that, like how they actually request the ballot on, from a wide, the majority of Canadians, I would assume, would probably take part in it. So how do, how do I know that I didn't just fill up my wife's uh, or my cousin or my daughter or whoever? How do I know that I didn't do all this stuff, um, filled out a false ballot? It's one of the biggest questions that have come up with online voting, which is why we implemented the liveness check. Um, how do you do it for vote by mail? And I, I, I think one of the biggest things that have come out from the last year anyway, is the ability for candidates who feel that the vote or the election was not the outcome that was accurate. Um, how are you going to audit this vote? Like, how are you going to audit the election? A lot of, lot of questions are going to be answered here. I, you know, a lot of these issues also pertain to online voting as well, but um, you know, you asked me what the what I I think for the forecast in. I think a lot of people are going to go vote in person in a lot of places, um, but I would assume, depending how severe this uh, fourth wave is hitting us, that vote by mail may be the uh, the way that uh, we kind of run this election. So it's going to be interesting to see the outcome. Absolutely. Um, as we're almost uh, close to closing up, if anyone else has any questions, uh, you know, put your hand up and and come on up. Uh, but till then, Matt, uh, I gotta ask. Um, 
you know, as a, as a, as a movie lover, especially of uh, sci-fi and, uh, and, and futuristic uh, uh, genres, you know, has, has there ever been like a portrayal of like direct democracy or digitized democracy or like, you know, a kind of a solution that you looked at and you're like, whoa, that's a cool system. Huh. It's, uh, I don't think uh, online voting is, is uh, cool enough to, uh, to make a movie about it, but maybe I'll, maybe it's a screenplay I can work on in my spare time, put some spice into it. <laughs> but uh, no, it, you know, there have been, there's been a lot of discussion when people look at like Western democracies. I think one country that really uniquely sticks out is Switzerland. So they have a very unique referendum style, sort of, it's what they call the direct democracy approach. They vote, I think, like, you know, minimum four times a year. Um, and basically, it's it's very representative. And a lot of people will say, oh, you know, Switzerland is the ideal democracy. It has its challenges, for sure. But the direct approach is really interesting. Funny enough, or coincidentally, I should say, Switzerland is also uh, one of the countries that is currently um, and has been looking at online voting for a number of years. In fact, uh, Swiss Post, uh, the, the Postal Service of Switzerland, is the um, vendor, if you will, or facilitator of the online voting initiative. So they they own the tech. They uh, they've been trying to build it. They're revising it right now. And what they hope to achieve is essentially uh, complete ubiquitous online voting moving forward for the entire country. Now, when you look at something like that, going back to like the civic engagement, the fact that you're creating a portal of engagement to between the the government and the electorate. Switzerland is really unique because maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily referendums like the Swiss do or, or binding uh, votes, but it could be a really unique approach uh, for both politicians, um, like I mean, like like elected politicians and the governments as a whole, agencies, etc., to start getting a better read of their electorate throughout the year, throughout election cycles. Um, I don't see why, you know, we basically throw our vote in every four years and that's the only barometer of engagement that the majority of us have like i i, I like to throw some st like stats out there but um statistically speaking voting is the most prominent form of, of civic engagement the majority of people will never attend a town hall they will never take part in a consultation uh, with the government or a round table etc but they will vote like even if it's not the highest numbers, they will still engage with the voting process, like 60% or something in Canada. If that's the case, maybe there's a way to start increasing that uh, accessibility and increasing those numbers. And I can't think of a better way to do it than online. We certainly aren't going to be mailing out you know, census reports. It's hard enough. The government had to send people door to door to get people to fill out a census. Um, you know, but if they have a, a digital mechanism, something like we're very familiar with because it's you know how we engage with every other service that we do, um, maybe we'll actually can see like a more prominent uh, or higher statistic of uh, of civic engagement. And I think this will provide a ton of value to both the you know the the residents because they'll be more connected to their community, their government. They'll see you know what's going on. There's tons of different ways you can approach this. But then the government will have this this absolutely cutting edge uh, data that they can then make actionable. They can make decisions that they know will reflect well in the community because they can basically litmus test the community before these, before these initiatives are even uh, brought to council. They can, they can figure out tons of information. Um, and that's you know, going back to the Swiss, the Swiss approach, direct democracy. 
figuring out how to better your community by listening and engaging with your community uh, directly. As for a movie, I don't know. Is there one? That's a question I'll throw out there. Anybody, uh, Matthew at newvote.com, if you have a movie uh, suggestion that engages with uh, online voting, I'd love to, I'd love to hear it and uh, have a conversation about it. All right, we have somebody who, who wants to come up. Um, Anivit, uh, did you have a question? Yeah, hey guys, thank, thank you for hosting this. Uh, this is pretty cool. Um, so I, I'm a software engineer by profession, so I understand sort of your, your technical pitch uh, sort of decently well. And it, at least personally, I feel confident about it. But my intuition tells me that government agencies typically have a lot of inertia when it comes to uh, new platforms or, or technologies that haven't been deployed before. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just curious to hear about how your experience has been sort of how does that process work from all the way from approaching an agency until potentially convincing them and converting them to use something new like this. And uh, also I'm curious to hear how you've uh, prepared yourself for, for that kind of uh, process um, going forward. Thank you. Yeah, no, for sure. Great question. So. The, the, uh, as, as with always, and I, I apologize for the, uh, the long-winded answers, but um, there's always a you know, multifaceted approach to this. So the first one is where governments are already issuing procurement contracts for online voting, it's not such a hard lift because they're already familiar with technology. They have requirements baked into their RFPs, their proposals. So like a lot of it is simply going through the proposal and making sure that you hit all the check boxes. Um, but they generally, you know, are familiar with it enough where it's not like you're not you're not you're not trying to convince an early adopter. Um, these people like Markham, like like Ravi was saying, Markham has been doing online voting since 2003. So in Ontario, it's very much a, an embedded technology at the municipal level anyway. Um, the province is looking at it, like exploring the opportunity of it. Like they publicly announced that they're forming a committee to, to move it to online voting um, in the subsequent election. But um, yeah, it's a little bit different. There, there are cities out here, in fact, large cities that only do online voting. So you can go in and vote in person, but you're not putting it into a, a ballot box like you'd expect. You're going into a, like a laptop and voting online, but in a community center or something like that. And there, there are a number of cities that have completely moved digital uh, to digital interfaces. And that's so, again, it's where the market's already embedded. It's it's not nascent technology where we see the more interesting approach is where communities that have never experienced online voting, other provinces, other countries, et cetera. So there's like different ways to, to really um, facilitate that um, comfort. The first one is what we did in Brazil, which is, you know, the government uh, wanted to trial it. So we simply just went down there and presented it. And they had like, um, you know, we had, we were, it was a live demo. We had real voters like casting um, uh, votes on it. It was like a non-binding election, like, but it was the municipal election. They were just pulling voters aside and, and getting them to trial it. They also had like essentially secret shoppers from the government come in and, uh, play with it and, and play with the technology that they acted like real voters. And like some of them would like announce after they were done, they were like, Oh, I'm from the government and uh, we really like this or whatever kind of thing. It was really cool, but you never knew who, you know, and it, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you know, everyone was wearing masks and, and, you know, they were wearing PPE. So you couldn't tell who was, who you thought may be a government agent uh, or not, but it was a really cool experience to have both the government and, and real voters kind of trial the system out and get the feedback that way. 
that's one way. So, you know, basically demos is, is an interesting aspect to, to get people a little bit more comfortable with and familiar. The other way is, is the civic engagement platform that we think is a really unique approach, which is you're essentially um, letting people in general, it doesn't even have to be the government necessarily, it could just be uh, organizations or anybody who wants to get familiar with this, um, the opportunity to do so. And it's, it's a light touch. And it, like for the civic engagement platform, they don't necessarily need to um, be hosting an election or anything binding. Like if you think about it, a poll and a vote realistically are the same thing. It's a question. It's a response. The function of it, like with your background, the, the core technology that's facilitating both of those services are exactly the same. You can apply the same level of encryption and sophistication to a poll as you could a, a vote. There's, you know, there's nothing predicating you on not doing so. But from the user's perspective, I mean like the administrator's uh, perspective as they're using the system, they are getting more comfortable using high secure interfaces, even though they're, they don't even really realize it. It's like um, your bank requiring you to use some sort of 2FA. You know, you use it because your bank requested it. It, you don't really understand the significance of using 2FA or why it's more secure. You just know that your bank requested it because you use your bank almost every day. It, it's, it becomes second nature to you. Now, all of a sudden, you know, receiving a, a 2FA request is no longer uh, jarring. It's like, oh, okay, this is just how things are when you want to have a secure system. We imagine the same sort of implementation would happen with online voting. Eventually, people will get so familiar with the end-to-end verifiability of, of election guard, get you know the ability to track a vote uh, and see the you know the end result, um, and basically just instantiating um, the vote itself, calling up, holding an election. If we can make the user interface so simple to use, but at the same time so secure, the administrators, the buyers of this service, will eventually you know it will become second nature. It won't be. Um, it won't be such a foreign concept to them. And that's where we see sort of like the light touch approach and the ability to go after markets that typically may not be available yet, but someday may be available to us. Um, thank you. That was, a, that was a very good answer. Awesome. Envid, thank you so much for coming up and uh, asking your question. Uh, if anyone else uh, has any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, Matt, as, as, uh, as he said, he's uh, more than happy to answer the, any kind of questions you have. Uh, he's uh, definitely passionate about this subject, as, the, as uh, most of you can hear and, and tell. Um, again, uh, Matthew's company, New Vote, uh, is trying to digitize democracy. And the purpose of today was to highlight the fact that this is a problem. This is a major concern right now, uh, with especially elections that are happening. But also, cool fact, uh, Matthew has opened up a front founder campaign. So if you're in Canada and looking for a way to invest in the future of uh, democracy and digitizing democracy and elections, and if everything you heard today was interesting, definitely check it out. Yeah, I guess we'll throw it out there just before we jump off. Is there any other questions? I uh, I like to talk. <laughs> just just joking, kind of. But uh, yeah, no, feel free to reach out to me anytime. Um, I could I could talk all night about this stuff. Um, yeah, Nuvo, we've uh, we're we're working diligently to uh, you know lead the digitization of democracy in in a number of ways. And we just think online voting is a really interesting vehicle to um, that pushes this forward. Um, but again, it's COVID. 
And I think, um, I think we're at the ground floor for, uh, I, I hate to use the, the paradigm shift analogy, but that's really what we're seeing right now. Like, you know, you would have never seen your MPs vote online even two years ago. Uh, but now it's become, you know, again, ubiquitous. Um, we expect the same sort of conversations to be had down in the U.S., and we're definitely having conversations globally about this technology. So, yeah, it's really, really interesting, and uh, happy to talk to anybody about it if they want to reach out. Perfect. Matt, before we sign off, uh, where can people find you and keep uh, keep in touch with NewVote? Yeah, for sure. So, N-E-U-V-O-T-E.com. Uh, we run a blog on there. We post um, uh, about once a month. Uh, we, we like to share articles. Um, the FrontFunder campaign, frontfunder.com um, slash NewVote. Um, we are running frequent updates on there for the length of the campaign. And uh, yeah, we, you know, we're quite busy right now with um, a lot of the procurement contracts. We're expecting a ton of them come out you know, in the fall. Um, we're working to, we're, we're in conversation right now to have it deployed in a, in a university. Um, and a few, we're basically just talking to municipalities right now and, um, and getting out there for the 2022, uh, Ontario election. But, um, yeah, furthermore, like we, we operate globally. So I have, um, we've been having conversations pretty much in, in Europe, um, the Middle East, uh, South America now. It's a, it's a really interesting field. And, um, uh, every update that we are publicly able to disclose, uh, we will be posting on the front Fender campaign or uh, on our social media channels. So you can typically just find us uh, the new vote at Twitter. Um, I don't update that one too frequently. Uh, the reason for that being is I learned a long time ago with uh, online voting, you know, keep your head down and do your work. Uh, don't necessarily go for the, go for the full limelight just yet because uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's a very uh, interesting field. Attracts a lot of attention, both positive and negative. Um, so I typically just like to stay behind the scenes and get my work done. Absolutely, perfect. Um, so we'll end the the, the cast here. And um, awesome, it's been great, Henry. How, how do we how do we sound? Cool. Um, yeah, Matt. Uh, Let's let's end it here. Um, we're gonna have a, a few more episodes of these coming up. So everyone else who's uh, tuned in, definitely tune in again. Uh, follow a new vote the club. Uh, it's a house button at the top for anyone that's new. You can click on the club and press follow. And uh, anytime there's gonna be new updates, uh, you will be notified. So thank you for joining us, everyone. See you next time. Thanks for having. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. See ya. Good night. Bye.